millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, Jim. Great to be back for our latest edition of The Other Hand. I must say, I really, really enjoyed our discussion with Professor Shane O'Mara for our last one. From Left Field, that, that podcast, but it has worked incredibly well. And I just wanted to note that it is our most downloaded podcast ever, so far at least. But of course, the other hand goes from strength to strength. So we'll, we'll try and break that record soon. But thanks to Shane. Thoroughly recommend that podcast for a discussion with a, with a difference. But not unrelated, I think, to virtually everything that we talk about. So on that, today's agenda is varied in the extreme, I must say. We've got some rather horrible inflation news via the labor market in the UK that I'd like to make some comments about, and that's impacted on bond markets. And markets everywhere are interesting, not just because of UK inflation data, but because of all sorts of different things, uh, not least the fact that I think markets are thinking about an economic slowdown everywhere. They're wondering, equity markets are wondering where profits growth are going to come from, but the bond markets are worried that inflation is still persistent and we're still looking at interest rate rises in a few jurisdictions. So there's a lot of confusion. I'd, if we get a chance, I'd like to talk about markets and in, in general, and in particular, the problems that the UK's markets are facing. There's a lot going on in Russia. Uh, the ruble has gotten itself into an awful lot of trouble and Russian interest rates went from 85 to 12% today. And that reflects the economic difficulties that Russia is going through as a result of the war in Ukraine, which as ever has an awful fascination. And if we get a chance, I'd like to talk about that. One of the things closer to home that I know you wanted to mention, Jim, is there's been some housing data of sorts from Eurostat. And there's been some evidence that Ireland's government has been listening to the other hand, in that there are these suggestions that the sovereign wealth fund, Ireland's rainy day fund, if you like, is all of a sudden going to get into bed with private sector developers and fund an awful lot of house building, which is precisely the suggestion that we made in our podcast before last. So um, it's great to know that uh, the policy debate is being so 
directly influenced by by your good self, Jim, I suspect, rather than rather than me. And finally, one of the things I think that would be nice to touch on would be the fascinating site in Italy of a very right-wing populist government coming out with repeated attacks on corporate profitability of one type or another. So an example of populism getting itself into trouble worthy of some remarks. But Jim, that story about Irish housing, about Irish property development, particularly the public-private partnership that is being hinted at. Perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Hi, Chris. Good to talk. And I totally agree with the comments you made about Shane O'Mara's podcast, the last one. Uh, It was a bit left of field, but absolutely fascinating. And I think the biggest problem was that in 47 minutes, which was the length of the pod, we couldn't possibly do justice to the number of threads that are contained within that book. So, um, yeah, i Definitely like to uh, thank Shane for his contribution there. It was great. In response to the second last podcast we did where I was talking about the financing of private developers and how the model wasn't working very well, um, I got an email from one of our listeners, Ken, who um, pointed out to me that the Home Building Finance Ireland HBFI, which was set up in 2018, has to the end of June given 1.44 billion in credit to uh, developers and delivering just over 6,300 houses. So government is doing stuff to provide funding. But I guess the point is that there's nothing like enough money flowing in at the moment. And in response to that, uh, the government is mulling over the possibility of using eight billion from the new sovereign wealth fund and inject it into housing, um, and and basically the mechanism is going to be the land development agency is going to enter partnerships with private developers to build social and affordable housing on public and private lands. Uh, the LDA had an original budget of one and a half billion, so increasing it from one and a half to eight billion would represent a marked upward adjustment. They're going to apparently target five or six private developers that they're going to have on a panel. So um, I I, I think it's a great idea. I think it's absolutely essential, as I've said, and as you've said, to um, improve the financing for development. Uh, I guess I'd have one slight reservation Um, The whole focus seems to be on social and affordable housing, which is obviously very important. Uh, But I think we need to keep cognizance of the the rental market and also the the sort of non-social and affordable home ownership market as well, because you'd hate to think that all of the resources were thrown into one part of the market um, at the expense of other parts of the market. And, you know, if you throw that much money into a certain segment of the market to the largest developers, which I assume it's going to be, um, are they going to be directed away from developing elsewhere? You know, so we, we need to be, I guess, a little bit careful. But in principle, I think this is a great idea because funding the development of housing supply is absolutely essential. And um, I hope Michael McGrath, Minister for Finance, who's driving this, um, actually does proceed and d- d- does it okay. And I think the, the the importance of this has been highlighted again today by 
a Eurostat report and it's based on a survey. Okay. And I saw somebody, I, I'm not sure what province of the survey is. I did see somebody on social media commenting that this was a self-selecting survey. So I, I, I guess the, the, the exact detail needs to be treated with some level of caution and skepticism. But anecdotally, it does appear to be consistent with the facts as we understand. But basically, the finding was that 68% of Irish adults aged between 25 and 29 are still living at home, or at least were still living at home in 2022. So that's 68%. The EU average is 42%. Denmark is 4.4%. Finland, 5.7%. Sweden, 6.3%. But you know, we, as I say, we can question um, just how robust these data are. But the bottom line is that we do know anecdotally, um, and I have my own personal experience, there are a lot of um, adults in that age group living at home because they can't afford to rent, they can't afford to buy. So I, I think this data actually does really strengthen that argument about diverting $8 billion from the Sovereign Wealth Fund into the development of housing. Yes, and we can all applaud that and hope that there is much more to come. There's a couple of threads I want to pick up on there, Jim. One of the things is, I forget where I read this. We both read so much. Somebody was talking about the importance of government financing for house building because it was a way of keeping the costs down. And I was a bit puzzled by this because a lot of the costs are going to be exogenous outside of government's control. And that's something that's going to have to be watched. What this article was getting at was that it was saying that if developers have to borrow from the marketplace, their costs, their interest costs are going to be going through the roof at the moment. And that's probably right. So if they can get cheaper funding from government or any kind of funding, to be honest, that is helpful. But the cost side of all of this needs to be watched very, very closely particularly when government purchasing, if it's involved, it's not got a great track record. The second thread I wanted to pick up is a related one. The, there was an article in the Irish Times, I think it was yesterday, it might have been today, uh, written by a woman. And I'm going to paraphrase slightly in order to make it a wee bit more entertaining because it wasn't a great piece of writing, it has to be said. And this young woman was saying that she is going to stay and battle it out in dear old Ireland. She's not going to emigrate, like uh, the suggestion was that most of the people she knows are emigrating. And she's going to stay and battle it out, despite the fact that Ireland is a shithole. And as I say, I'm paraphrasing slightly. The issues seem to be many and varied, but of course, the focus is very much on housing. And one figure that was mentioned in the the article was €800 a month rent for sharing. And she suggested, hinted, that if she went to places like the UK, and I think Canada was mentioned as well, maybe Australia, can't remember the exact list of countries, but it was the usual list of suspects, how much better off she would be in terms of housing and in terms of her life. And the the article was weird, and it was both unaware of itself and unaware, in that she admitted that she was basing a lot of her perceptions of her friend's life in places like London on the basis of their Instagram feeds. And she realized that this would give rise to FOMO, fear of missing out, which if you're going to base that on Instagram feeds, there's probably no hope. She appeared to realize this, but then proceeded to uh, base her views 
on those Instagram feeds, which was a little weird. But another figure that was quoted, or at least a price, a cost that was quoted, which I found quite jaw-dropping actually, Jim, was that based on her friend's lifestyles in London, she think, she said that going out, eating out actually was the phrase that she used, was cheaper in London than it is in Dublin. Which I have to tell you, as I do both things very regularly, that is for the birds. Uh, you will now regularly pay in excess of €9 Euros for a pint of lager in London uh, at current prices, at current exchange rates. And I could list a whole host of other food and drink stuffs, which uh, I think that you would still get cheaper. Obviously, both cities are expensive, but I do still think that the idea that London is a cheaper city in which to live than Dublin is crackers. And the €800 Euros a month rent if you want to live in a shithole in Catford, sharing, by all means, 800 euros might get you something in the grottier parts of London. But in the nicer parts of London that we all know and love, 800 euros, you'd struggle to get a decent flat share. So I think that sometimes these things need to be corrected. But the thing that strikes me is that yet again, the Irish Times is publishing the narrative, giving publicity to the narrative that uh, Ireland is this dystopian hellhole and London for example in this particular article is so much better that is just not true that is just you know at variance with the facts uh, and it, it just seems to be this narrative that builds and builds and builds and so I would say well done Sinn Féin uh, you've won well you know congratulations you've got that message across happens to be wrong but you and I Jimmy the only people that actually seem to think that it's wrong yeah, one should never let the facts get in the way of a good story. I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying about London. Um, I've had a, I had a son renting there for a year, and I can assure you, uh, the rent he was paying um, was probably in excess of what he would be paying here in Dublin. Um, I was in London a few weeks ago for five days, ate out a lot, uh, drank a few pints of lager, and so on. And I can assure you, um, as you've said, it is more expensive than Dublin. I love London. I'm not criticising it. I love the place. Um, but to suggest that it's a much cheaper city than Dublin is patently wrong. And I think it is important to mark that fact. Chris, in terms of Irish data, what's happening here, um, i just like to cover one piece of data we got today from the Central Statistics Office. That is the Irish merchandise trade numbers for the first six months of the year. And overall exports down by 2.8%. And of course, where this is important is because it feeds into the GDP measure quite strongly. Because if you look at the breakdown of what's happening on the export side, why did we get 2.8%? Well, exports to Great Britain up by 9%. Exports to the EU 27 up 7.9%. Exports to the United States up 17, sorry, down 17.7%. Okay. And so the weakness is to the United States. And then if you look into what's happening in the United States, it's purely, well, it's not purely, but chemicals and related products, which is dominated by uh, medical and pharma, is down by. Um, to, the, to the United States, it's down by 20.7%. What's mainly happening here is the chemical and pharma side having come off a major high during the two years of COVID when we had a lot of exports to the United States, COVID-related medicines. That's obviously 
you know, not happening now. So there's a correction happening there. But also we're seeing significant weakness on the machinery and transport equipment side down by 14.4%. But the chemical and pharma is the dominant piece. Uh, there's significant weakness in exports to the United States. And that is, you know, impacting on gross domestic product. And we saw that particularly in the first quarter of this year. But if you look at some of the the most important indigenous export sector, food and live animals, up by 4.8%, still going well. And exports to Great Britain, as I said, up by 9%. Um, So something I've said before is that Brexit is certainly benefiting some parts of the Irish economy, obviously not all. The reason why I bring this up is because it has been an emerging trend of weakness in exports this year. There is a specific reason for that. It will have a significant impact and is having a significant impact on gross domestic product as a measure of economic activity. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How much of all of that, Jim, is just a story about COVID vaccines? Uh, I think it's primarily, uh, absolutely. There, there, There was massive increase in production during COVID and exports to the States, uh, that was not sustainable. I think everybody realized at the time it was not sustainable. Okay. That's the first time we've mentioned COVID in a long time. Thank God. Thank God, yeah. Unfortunately, we might be mentioning it again quite soon because there appears to be a new variant, sub-variant on the loose that uh, means that everybody of a certain age is going to be encouraged to get another vaccination this winter. So that might do something for Irish exports. Let's wait and see. I want to conclude this bit of section on data and what the Irish government is doing about housing and its involvement with the private sector and my little rant about uh, the yet another piece in the Irish Times about Ireland as a dystopian shithole. Uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful article in today's Financial Times written by, I think, their best journalist, a guy called uh, Janan Ganesh. And he writes on a whole host of different topics. And this week's column or with the, today's column has the title, The West Has Forgotten the Limits of Government. And it's a beautifully written piece. Even if you disagreed with every single word, you any writer would just love the way this guy writes. And he talks about the way in which every single problem in the UK is now the government's fault. And he generalizes this to the West. And I'll quote, because it's worth quoting a little bit of this wonderful article. The West is going through a phase of almost messianic belief in the power of government. America's protectionist turn against China is the largest example. 
the sudden faith in tariffs, subsidies, bureaucratic checks on investment is startling. But it isn't the only case of utopian government around. Rishi Sunak is the sixth or the seventh UK premier in Ganesh's lifetime to try and level up or rebalance his London-centric nation. Emmanuel Macron is almost as far down the line of French presidents who have sought to influence West and Central Africa from Paris. And we've talked about Niger a lot. He goes on and on and on. He doesn't mention Ireland, but he could. One of the phrases in his article that caught my eye is that this messianic belief in government that it will always make things better stands in stark contrast to the data. It sometimes makes things better, but it often makes things worse. And this has always been my point about this simplistic belief that all you have to do is, is elect Sinn Féin and the housing crisis in Ireland will be solved. They might actually, at best, I think, leave things as the way they are. But I think one of the things that uh, you may wish to check my forecasting ability on in a couple of years' time, Jim, if we're still doing this, is that I think that they could well, like a lot of government actions in a lot of areas around the world, this is not anything peculiar to Ireland or indeed peculiar to Sinn Féin. But on this particular issue, I think that they could make things worse. Have a look at Ganesh's article. It's, it's, it's It's a lovely read. And an antidote to that stuff that we're reading all the time about every single problem that we face in our lives, in our societies, in our economies is amenable to some kind of government action. Frankly, sometimes things are just what they are and there's not an awful lot that government can do about it. I'm a firm believer that governments can be a force for good and I think they have been, but we need to be very careful about how far the pendulum has swung in terms of how many problems the governments can deal with particularly all at once. Can I just pick you up on something there? I mean, about government and how government is believed to be the solution to all problems by some people. Um, I heard an interview in the last few days with a professor of economics in Oxford, whom I'd never heard of, and his name won't come to me now. Uh, He was talking about a book he's just written, whose name will not come to me either. But he basically... (laughs) You're getting old, mate. It's great, isn't it? I'm getting old, Chris, yeah. But I was driving listening to it, so I, I couldn't be taking down notes. But anyway, he has built up a database of public projects around the world over last i think i think about three decades well four decades actually as far as i remember he looked at the inability of these public projects to come in anywhere close to budget and there are some dramatic examples such as the sydney opera house which went i think a thousand times over budget Uh, We have the debacle with the children's hospital here. So the notion that the state can step in and do all of this stuff efficiently and effectively uh, is tosh as well. So It it wasn't Professor Bent Flyberg, was it? It was, yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's a great name, isn't it? Brilliant. (laughs) The book is Mega Projects and Risk, An Anatomy of Ambition. There you go. That's it, Chris. Thank yeah, you. For... I just looked it up while you were speaking, mate. I... <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. But it, it was a fascinating discussion. And yes. uh, it's, it's, he went into the reasons why this is happening. But uh, yeah. Okay, moving on. Okay, what do you want to do next? Italy. Ah, yes. I'm fascinated. Corporate profits are anathema to this new ultra-right-wing government. First of yeah. all, we had the tax on banks, which was quickly rode back to be from something to a nothing burger, quite frankly, uh, because of the market's reaction to this. And now 
she's having a go at Ryanair, I think, isn't she, Jim? She has suggested putting a price cap on flights between mainland Italy to the islands of Sicily and Sardinia. And apparently ticket prices on those flights have gone up 70% um, this year. So this is another populist reaction to uh, price pressures in the system. The airlines are obviously going berserk about this. They believe that this intervention by Maloney um, will impact on the free and deregulated air transport market in the European Union. Uh, Ryanair have described the move as illegal under EU law and they warn of the unintended consequences of raising fares in the long run by reducing flights and passenger numbers. Okay, and the commission, the the, the airlines have gone to the European Commission to look into this. Uh, The commission's initial reaction, and they are looking into it, but the initial reaction is that price capping has rarely been an effective means of achieving um, affordable prices. Okay, so <laughs> clearly the, the commission has a view on this. But uh, the, other, the other point, I think, about all of this is that um, airfares have gone up this year. And on average around the world, they're up by about 30%. Okay. Um, and and there's, there's clear reasons for this. You know, there's been a surge in demand post-COVID for leisure trips and leisure holidays. Uh, There is a shortage of aircraft for a variety of reasons, some related to COVID lockdowns and supply chain disruptions. And of course, there are higher costs coming from labor and fuel in particular. So all of these factors are feeding into um, more expensive airfares. So the the notion that a right-wing prime minister would step in and interfere with the workings of the market in this sort of manner uh, defies belief. But yeah, the airlines are not happy. Well, one of the interesting things about that is that as a result of Boris Johnson's government, Boris Johnson himself once saying, and I won't use a four-letter word, well, a terrible four-letter word, I've already sworn on this podcast once, I won't say it again, F business, a good few years ago, that famous quote in which it was revealed that the Tory party, the Conservative party, the ultra-right wing bit of the Conservative party as it has become is no longer the party of business has been much remarked upon in the UK. And it seems that the ultra-right wing populist thing that uh, is around uh, various countries is not pro-business in the way that right wing governments used to be, which is a really interesting modern development for 2023. It's new. It seems that modern conservatism, including the Republican Party, big chunks of it in the United States, is no longer the friend of big business in the way that it was. Uh, It's it's arguable that Trump is no friend of big business, uh, for example. Biden certainly isn't. So it's it's really interesting how uh, business is on the back foot from many different political perspectives. And that's going to be really fascinating to observe whether that's sustained or, or whether it isn't but the problem of course is this goes back to this belief that governments are there to do everything whether you're right wing or whether you're left wing particularly if you're populist you've got to stay popular haven't you jim and that's yeah. the trick that populists once they gain power uh, find difficult to pull off because they have to try and appease just about everybody and you can't do that it's Gre- like Greece, running a- Greece comes to mind doesn't it oh yeah you just you, you end up perhaps a bit like the UK is today, where if the if the ultimate barometer of how well a country is doing economically, socially, politically, but particularly economically, 
is its government borrowing costs. We've always thought about places like Italy and Greece as the basket cases, the countries, Greece, that has defaulted more times than it's actually been paying its debts historically. Italy, with its massive deficits, no growth, yada, 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 leading to very high government borrowing costs. Do you know which major European country now has higher borrowing costs than Spain, Italy, Portugal, and Greece, all of them? The UK. And of course, that's the news from the UK today is that... Did you say an EU country? That's what... I said a major European country has higher government borrowing costs than the, the, what used to be called the pigs, if you might remember. That's correct. I was just going to point out to you, Britain was no longer in the EU. I said uh, major European country. It's still in Europe the last time I looked, although clearly it doesn't want to be, but you can't. You can't vote against geography, at least I don't think you can. True that. But we've had some news today, of course, that the UK's labour market is misbehaving in ways that are worse than anybody else's labour market. We have this weird situation where unemployment suddenly is going up again, but so are wages. And wages came in, uh, total wage growth, including bonuses, were, were expected to come in at 7.4% annual growth in the last month, and they came in at 82 which is really going to complicate the Bank of England's task. Markets have been moving in the last few days anyway to price in even higher interest rates in the UK. It looks like at the moment we're on our way to 6% base rates, which if you thought things were tricky in the UK housing market, just wait till you get interest rates at that sort of level. There was hope that the worst was over because some fixed-term mortgages have actually been falling over the last while and things had settled down and this is only going to make things worse. So I so it's meant it means that the bond markets are in trouble in the UK, both short term and long term. The UK equity market's in a spot of difficulty, but that's also because everybody's equity market is going through a little bit of softness at the moment. And that's really, really interesting. Warrants a longer discussion. But I think that uh, equity markets are now in for, as I said last time, actually, the podcast before last, I thought equity markets were going to go through a period of difficulty. I still think that. The most interesting development for me is that the the single thing that has propelled equity markets higher this year, which is the tech hype around artificial intelligence, I think that might be abating somewhat as people are going, getting a little bit... uh, Uh, having a second look at these AI systems, particularly the chatbots, and realizing just right now, for now perhaps, it might be temporary, they aren't all that they're cracked up to be and that the hype is not being followed by reality. So I think that markets are in a bit of trouble. But as always with this, I think the UK's markets are in more trouble than anybody else's. All of this is not being helped by the fact that energy prices are going up again, Jim. And we noted in a podcast last week that in the day that we were recording it, that natural gas prices that day had gone up 30%. And today, they've gone up 15%. Natural gas prices are up 40% uh, versus their low of June. That's still a lot lower. Um, sorry, they're up 60% from their low in June. They're still, a, they're still a way, way much below where they were this time last year. But it just shows you the kind of volatility in these things that we are going to have to live with now that we no longer rely on Russian gas supplies. Looking at the UK wage growth piece, um, I thought what was interesting, the breakdown showed that, okay, the headline increase was 7.8% in the second quarter, but public sector 6.2% and finance and business services 9.4%. 
So you still see this wage inequality feeding through the system and not, not surprising against that sort of backdrop. You know, we've had this period, we are having this period of intense public sector um, labor instability in the UK with strikes and so on um, at, at the moment. On a slightly more positive note for inflation, Cantor, the research uh, body, it published data today on supermarket prices in the UK. It does it here in the Irish market as well. But uh, supermarket price in the UK in the four weeks to August 6th, up by 12.7%. That was running at 17.5% in March. And during the month leading up, the four weeks leading up to August 6th, there was a decline of 2.2%, which was the second sharply month, the second sharpest monthly fall in supermarket prices since this series was commenced by Cantor back in 2008. So the food contribution is starting to moderate. We cannot be guaranteed that's going to continue because of what's happening at a global level. But um, you're correct. The the energy piece is going to is coming to the fore again. So it is still a bleak outlook for inflation and for Bank of England interest rate policy. I think there's no doubt about that. Petrol pump prices here in the UK are going up again, Jim. I don't know whether they yeah. are in Ireland. They are indeed, yeah. yeah. I've seen them sneak up over the last few days. All right, Jim. I think we've run out of time, as always. And so we, the things that we've left on the table, particularly the discussion of Russia, Russian interest rates, the ruble, and the connections to the war in Ukraine, uh, that's something that I will return to. But let's leave it till next time. Another great discussion, mate. Great. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.